If you have your Bibles this morning, would you join me in Hebrews chapter number 12? Hebrews chapter number 12 this morning. I'd like to point out one passage of Scripture as our springboard verse, and that is going to be verse number Two, a very fitting verse for that song that was just sang. And I, I thank the Lord for the choir and for all our instruments. And thank you, Phil, for leading us, especially with that song, Behold Our God. I love that part where it says, Seated on His Throne. That This verse right here speaks exactly to that. Hebrews chapter number 12. Let's look at verse number 2 as we use this as a springboard verse to catapult us into this message. If you're able to stand, would you please stand? as we honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2. The Scripture says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the Word of God. Amen. You may be seated this morning. As we've made our way through Hebrews, it's been fascinating to see the transition, how one uh, section of it just flows right into the next. And the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is more excellent than anything you can ever imagine. We've seen all through this book as time after time and illustration after illustration, the writer of Hebrews has said Jesus is much greater than anything you can ever think of. He gets to chapter number 11 and he switches gears just a little bit and he talked about how Jesus was more excellent through faith, which was a direct poke in the eye, if you would, against religion. So what do you mean? Well, remember, these Christian Jews wanted to leave Christianity and wanted to go back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, just simply said this, No, you, you can't do that because you're going back to a dead religion. Religion always manifests itself through works. But Jesus is greater through faith. He's more excellent through the faith that we have. And then he lists all these individuals who had faith that had gone before us, starting all the way in the book of Genesis with Abel and working his way through. He begins to illustrate and highlight all these individuals that have gone before us who can be characterized as having a life of faith. Jesus is more excellent through faith. That's what we talked about last week. And today he builds upon that in chapter number 12. And he's going to build upon that thought by saying Jesus is more excellent through endurance. I don't know if you're like me, but have you ever felt like giving up? Have you ever felt like throwing in the towel? Have you ever felt like retiring, quitting, saying I'm done? I gave this illustration this morning when Alyssa was a little bitty baby. She got the rotavirus. Uh, and when she had the rotavirus, she dehydrated. And that dehydration was very hard on her. And we ended up at the hospital. And man, it was just such a, such a frustrating thing. And I was a brand new uh, pastor, youth pastor there in Carroll County. And we didn't have insurance at that time, Brother Mark. And it was just a very, very hard time. And I can remember being in the hospital there at Tanner Healthcare Systems. And I remember sitting down having myself a pity party. Have you and God ever had a pity party? It, it sounds something like this, Abe. God, I can't believe you'd let something like this happen to me. I'm a Christian. I love you. 
I fear you. I've given my life to you. I've trusted you. And here I am in the hospital with my daughter in there getting fluids, having a difficult time. I just don't understand this. Have you ever had one of those pity parties with the Lord? Did you know the Lord will never waste a situation like that? He'll never waste it. Regardless of the challenge or the situation you find yourself in, as hard as you might think, and here's what the society we're living in today, I just don't understand if Christianity is true, then why is God blessing the wicked? Oh, dear friend, the Scripture says it. The Bible says don't be misled. They're not getting away with anything. So why then do the, why do the righteous seem to struggle all the time? Why do the righteous seem to have such a hard time, such a difficult time? Because it takes a lot to mold us into the image of Christ, DeWitt. The Lord is doing everything in His power for you, a born-again child of God, to maneuver, get you, to help build in your life, to help mold you into Jesus. Your life is His, and you're being molded into the image of Christ, to have the mind of Christ. And dear friend, what greater opportunity than the challenges that exist in our day and when God puts a difficult thing in our life, puts a hard thing in our life to help mold us into his image. Here's the question. How do you respond to that trial? How do you respond to that difficulty? In the book of Hebrews, they wanted to run away. They wanted to get out of church. They wanted to go back to Judaism. They wanted to go back to a works-based form of pleasing God. And that was not the answer. The answer was for them to endure. The answer was for them to lock their eyes on Jesus and to remember and to recall why it is they're going through the trial they're going through. The reason why they were going through this trial is because God was trying to make them more like Jesus. And dear friend, that hadn't changed in all this time. The reason why you go through trials, the reason why you go through struggles, the reason why you go through hard times is God wants you to take that trial and wants to make you more like Jesus. James said it the best. He said, brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience, and let patience have her perfect work in you. What is he saying in that text? He's saying because of the difficult time you're going through, because of the hard time you're going through, these hard times are maturing you and making you more like Jesus Christ. And thank God that he loves you enough to chasten you and to discipline you, to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. I can remember being raised by my dad, uh, DeWitt, and I I can remember uh, just being a kid and doing dumb things and foolish things. And dad, my dad would say, Shane, what's your name? My name's Shane. Well, what's your last name? Well, my last name's Robertson. He said, Robertsons don't act that way. Robertsons don't act the way that you're acting. Straighten up. You act like a Robertson. Dear friend, that's what chapter 12 is all about. Chapter 12 is about God looking down and saying to these individuals, what's your name? You're a Christian. Christians don't act like that. They don't walk away from the church. They don't harbor unforgiveness. They don't harbor bitterness. No, you're a Christian. You're different. People are looking at you. They're watching you. They're seeing how you respond. You're either drawing people to Jesus Christ or you're repelling them away. Why would anybody want what you've got? If you say you love Jesus, why won't you forgive that brother? If you say you love Jesus, why won't you forgive your spouse? If you say you love Jesus, why won't you share the gospel? If you say all of these things, and it boils down many times to the trials that we're in. 
the trials that were in hinder us from living the life that God wants us to live. Dear friend, I'm here to tell you the prosperity gospel is nothing more than a lie. When you get saved, everything is not just hunky-dory in a bed of roses. When you get saved, your mama's still going to die. When you get saved, you're still going to grow old. When you get saved, you're still going to lose your vision, lose your hearing. You may even get cancer. And you might be a born-again child of God. How are you going to respond to what God uses in your life to mold you into the image of Christ? Here's another question. Will you endure when God puts that into you? Chapter 12 can be divided up into five sections. It's a very encouraging passage of Scripture, and it's also a very challenging passage of Scripture. Uh, just so you'll know, I haven't made it out of point two in all the last couple of services. I'm going to do my best to give you as much as I can this morning. Let me give you the five breakdowns of chapter number 12 as the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is more excellent through endurance. Here, here's the equation. You plus Jesus equals victory. You can do anything. You can endure with Jesus. You and Jesus can get through. Notice what he says first of all. The first thing I want you to see in the text is I want you to see the charge. The charge. Now when I say charge, I don't mean that he's going to charge the people to give him money. That's not what I'm referring to at all. I'm referring to a statement that he's going to make in relationship to their Christian life. It's found in the first four verses. Look at the charge he gives and then I want to point out some specific things. He says, wherefore... Seeing we also are encompassed about or compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. For consider him that in, uh, endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So I want you to notice, first of all, what he's fighting against. He's fighting against them being weary and fainting in their minds. Remember, the battleground for the devil is your mind. And if the devil could get in your head and get in your mind and tell you that you're not loved by God, you're not good enough, or Christianity's not true, or it's not real, or, or, or if, you can, if you can waver and be wearied in your mind, then the devil's got you just where he wants you. This is where he had the church. They were weary and they were fainting in their mind. So that's what he's combating. How is he going to do it? He's going to charge them in two areas. Number one, the first area he's going to charge them in, he's going to charge them in the way that they live. Now, in the way that they live also ought to be the way that we live. So I've categorized this in this notation. We are getting the same charge, and this charge should be in the way that we live. How they lived in the first century ought to be the same way that we live in the 21st century. Why? Because the Word of God is relevant. It was written to them, but it applies to us. So how should we then live? That's the question. How should we live? He tells us here in this text they ought to live in three ways. Number one, they ought to live encouraged. I'd write that down, write that down, encouraged. Where do you see that, pastor? Look at the text and get your pens ready because here it comes. Wherefore, seeing we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. There it is. There's the encouragement. Underline it. We are encompassed or we are compassed about. 
with so great a cloud of witnesses. He uses the term wherefore to point us back to what he just said in verse number in chapter number 11. What did he say in chapter 11? He says, think about the faith that has gone before us. The faith of Abel, the faith of Abraham, the faith of Sarah, the faith of Enoch, the faith of Noah, the faith of Isaac, the faith of Jacob, the faith of, of Joseph. All of these, he said, lived by faith. And then he says, there's some people that I had, can't even mention talking about Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel and the prophets. And he just says, think about all these people that I've already talked about. They are witnesses. That is not that they're straining over the banister of heaven watching you, but they are examples that have gone before you. And if they can live by faith, we can live by faith too. That, that's what he's saying. If they can endure to the end, by faith, so can you. Don't let your heart be weary. Don't let your mind be weary. Trust in God. Resist the devil, the Bible says. He will flee from you. And the writer of Hebrews charges individuals to live an encouraged life. Let me ask you a question. Are you encouraged today? That doesn't sound very convincing. Are you encouraged today? Well, no, not really, Pastor. I'm, I'm really, I'm discouraged. Well, why are you discouraged? Did you have your quiet time with Jesus today? Did you listen to the words that the choir sang? Did you hear the worship songs? Or were you distracted? Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is alive. Behold our God seated on the throne high and lifted up. There's nothing that we can't go through that's not under his feet. We ought to live encouraged. And then number two, the second thing he says is we ought to live equipped. Look at what the scripture says. Notice the text. He says, not only are we surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The word beset means to weigh us down. The term run is categorizing a marathon, not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. And because it is a marathon, we ought to equip ourselves and be prepared to run a marathon. Uh, dear brothers and sisters, in regards to getting ready for something, he says we are to lay aside. The word lay aside there means to pull off, to set aside, to push away. I use this illustration. When I'm done preaching this evening, uh, or, or when I'm done preaching this afternoon, I'm going to go home and I'm going to take this jacket off. And I'm going to lay it aside. Tonight, I'm going to push it away. I'm going to hang it up in the closet. What I'm saying to you is this. As a born-again child of God, there are some things in our life that we need to pull off, set aside, and push away. And he tells us what they are. He says the first one is the weights. The weights. W-E-I-G-H-T. You see it there. It's in the text. I would circle it or highlight it or something because he's pointing something that you and I have the responsibility of doing. The preacher can't do this for you. You've got to do this. You have to lay aside the weight that so easily hinders you from running your race. What are some weights, Pastor, that hinder us? I thought about that. Here are some weights that hinder us today in the 21st century. In particular, let's talk about our own house. What are some weights that can affect us? Watch this. Number one, a busy schedule. You see, a weight could, it doesn't have to be something that's bad. It can be something that's good. Everybody likes a busy schedule. You heard that old little cliche, the idle hands are the devil's workshop. Be busy. But you can be so busy 
that you miss the Lord. You can be so busy that you don't have your quiet time. You can be so busy you don't have your prayer time. You can be so busy that you miss Sunday school. You can be so busy and schedule so much that you miss church. And you miss church three or four times and all of a sudden you realize that you're not in church anymore. And you scratch your head and you go, how did we get here? You let the weight beset you. There are weights and one of those weights can be a busy schedule. Here's another one. Misplaced affections. Misplaced affections. Now, let, let's just bring this up into the 21st century. The misplaced affections that we have in the 21st century is SEC football. Can I get a witness right there? <laughs> SEC football. We all love it. Man, we like to sit there and watch it. If not, you like to eat. At least eat while you're watching. I mean, it is something that has become affectionate to us. It's something that we, we enjoy. We enjoy. And I, listen, it's not, it's not necessarily a sin. I mean, it, it, it's something of pleasure, and we enjoy that, and, that, and that's good. But when this, this affection becomes misplaced, then we have a problem. When there's more football than there is of Jesus... When there's more football than there is of faith. When we allow, when we allow football to uh, dictate and regulate whether or not we're going to be faithful in church. Uh, you, you think I'm kidding, but no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm telling the truth uh, when I say, just watch and see. If your team loses, will you be in church? Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a misplaced affection. A weight that weighs us down when we let football dictate whether or not we're going to be in church. Here's a third one. Abundance. Abundance. Man, when we have little, let's go to church. But we have affluence. When we have abundance. When we have a good economy. We got a little bit extra money. Let's go away from the weekend. There's nothing wrong with getting away for the weekend. All right, there's nothing wrong with that. But when one weekend leads to two weekends, when two weekends lead to three weekends, and three weekends lead to four weekends, and you're only in church once a month, then we have a problem with affluence. Dear brothers and sisters, the Scripture tells us, uh, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as some do. All the more as you see the day approaching. What day that's approaching? The day of judgment. As the day of judgment comes, we ought to desire to be in church. We ought to want to come together. We ought to want to worship together. We ought to want to, to, sh to lift our voices and sing these songs of praise and hymns. Why? Because in the way that we live, we need to be encouraged. There are those that have gone before us. We need to be equipped. That is, lay aside these things, these weights, if you would, that has burdened us down. And then he says this. He says, then there's some sin you need to let go of. You need to let go of some sin. Look at the text. It says it right there. He says, and also lay aside the sin which that so easily besets us, so easily weighs you down. You know what the number one sin that weighs churches down? Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Not willing to forgive. Being unwilling to forgive a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. You know what the second biggest problem in the church is? Bitterness. Letting that anger turn inward and not dealing with that 
forgiveness and getting bitter about it. And then when you get bitter about it, you find your little circles and you won't talk about it and, 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 and talk about this, that, and that. And all you see is the problems. All you see is the challenges. And then you look over there at that other church and you say, man, you know what? Uh, they don't have as many problems as I think we do. The, the grass always looks greener on the other side, doesn't it? And it, he says, you know what? Let's go over there. And, let, and you leave and you'll go over there for a while and you're, you're feasting on the grass that's greener on the other side only to realize that the only reason it's greener on the other side is because it's growing above the septic tank. And the Word of God tells us here, He says, let us lay aside the sin that easily besets us. Lay aside this unforgiveness. Lay aside this bitterness. Lay aside unconfessed sin. Lay aside unspoken prayers. And get focused on the main thing. The main thing here is Jesus. He's the main thing. Turn to that person beside you and say, Jesus is the main thing. He says, if we're going to live, and he charges them, he says, I want you to live in the way that you live. I want you to live encouraged. I want you to live equipped. And number three, I want you to live engaged. Look at what he says in the text. Let me turn your attention back uh, to verse 2. He says, looking unto Jesus. There's the engagement. I, I mean, when I speak of the word engagement, I mean engaged in what the Lord, who he is, and what he has for your life. Dear brothers and sisters, you know that God did not send you here to Maysville Baptist Church to sit and soak. He didn't call you here and you didn't join this church just to sit here and just to hear the preacher preach and get all reared up and spit and slobber. And, and, and I, you, that's not the reason why. You're here. The reason why you're here is to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. So that we can make disciples. we got a three, three things we want to do here at Maysville. Love God. Love others and serve the world. And dear brothers and sisters, we need to engage in this by fixing our gaze upon Jesus Christ. That's what the word uh, fix means, or looking unto Jesus. It means to fix your gaze upon him. I mean, lock your eyes upon Jesus and say, that is the finish line. That's the goal. Jesus is the goal, and I'm running towards that. I'm engaged. My eyes are fixed there. I gave this illustration. I, I love to deep sea fish. I do. I really, really love to deep sea fish. With one caveat. I have to see the land. <laughs> because if we get so far out and I can't see the land, I get sick at my stomach. Does anybody else do that? Or is I'm the only one? I love it, man. I love going out there. I love fighting and bringing those big fish in. But I hate being sick. And I have noticed that when I can see the land, I can, I can bring stability to my equilibrium and I don't get sick. But if I can't see the land, I don't know which way is stable and I just chum all day long. That ain't no fun. <laughs> Chumming is no fun. The cure for that is to get me close enough to the land where I can see the land. And seeing the land... I don't get sick anymore. That's the same term we're looking when looking to Jesus. Fixing your eyes on Jesus and not taking your eyes off of him. Because when you take your eyes off of Jesus, you get sick. When you take your eyes off of Jesus, you get queasy. You don't believe me? Look at what happened to Peter. When Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, that's when he began to sink. 
Dear brother, he says, and charges them in the way that they should live. They should live engaged. They should live equipped. They should live encouraged. And then he says this. He says, not only do I want to charge you in the way that you live, I also want to charge you in the way that you think, verse 3 and 4. In the way that you think, verse 3 and verse 4. I know it says verse 2 on the notes. That's a typo. But it's in verse 3 and verse 4. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. He tells us here in this passage of Scripture how we ought to think. He says the first way, way you ought to think is you ought to think about Jesus' sacrifice. Notice what he says again in the text. Consider, that is ponder, think, rest upon him. Who is that? Jesus. What did Jesus do? He endured such contradiction of sinners. He's referring to the fact that he wants you to think about how Christ and the accusations that came against Christ and how that relates to you. What do you mean? Did you know Jesus Christ was accused of being the illegitimate son of Mary? And I find it fascinating because he doesn't stop there. He, in fact, this might be the very thought that he's thinking of. When he gets down to verse number 8, he says this, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you're bastards and not sons. In the Bible, what he said in the text. It wasn't Jesus that was illegitimate. The illegitimate children are the ones that do not come to Jesus Christ. So he says, you got to think about this thing right. As a born-again child of God, you need to think about his sacrifice. And then not only thinking about his sacrifice, he also says, you ought to also think about Jesus' strivings. Look at what he says in the text again. He goes on uh, to say this in verse 4. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. He's simply saying here in the text that Jesus Christ experienced greater affliction than you can ever imagine. You think the persecution that you're going through is hard? What about Jesus who had his beard plucked out? You think the, uh, the persecution, the trial that you're going through is hard? Well, you need to think about Jesus as he's striving against these sins that of mankind and humanity. As he died on Calvary's cross, as he had the crown of thorns placed upon his head, whipped beyond recognition, and died for you and I. He strove against this sin so that you and I could have eternal life. He says, remember that. So the charge is very simple. The charge is this. When you do all of these things, when you think about how we should live and how we should think and be encouraged and equipped and engaged, then you find yourself in the relationship that we should run the race faithfully. That's what he's saying. Run the race faithfully. This is the charge. Then he switches gears. In verses 5 through 11, he moves on from the charge to the correction. To the correction. In verses 5 through 11, this section of the text, the writer uh, corrects these believers and challenges them to do three things. What are the three things he wants them to do? Number one, he wants them to remember. Look at verse 5. What does he want them to remember? He says this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto, the, unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son he receives. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you were without chastisement, who of all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, 
We have had fathers of our flesh which correct us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and alive? For they verily for a few days chastens us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. He corrects them. And in this correction, you see, he corrected them three ways. Number one, the first thing in verse 5 and 6, he says, remember. What did he want them to remember? He wanted them to remember not to take the word of God lightly. Did you hear what he said in the text? Look again. Look at what it's right there. He says, and you've forgotten the exhortation which has been spoken to you. What was the exhortation that was spoken to them? That God is with you every step of the way. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You can make it. You're never walking this earth alone. You're never walking through the trial alone. At the very moment you think you're walking through the trial with only one set of footprints, it's the footprints of Jesus who's carrying you through the trial. Remember that, he says. But then he also says in verse 6, don't give up or give in when the Lord disciplines you. Notice what he says again in verse number 6. He says, or verse 5, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receives. Uh, I really, really, grow, growing, with raising kids. I, actually, let me put it this way. When I was growing up, I didn't understand this. My dad would say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I mean, right before he'd wear my tail out. And in the back of my mind, here's what I'm thinking. You liar. <laughs> it's going to hurt me way more than it hurts you. In particular, it's going to hurt my hindsight. It's going to be bad. And he meant he'd tear me up. Tear me up. And now that I'm a dad, and I've raised five kids in the process of finish raising three teenage boys, please pray for me. I can honestly say in thinking back, disciplining my children, it really does hurt to discipline because you have such a high standard for them. And you just want, because they're your kids, you just want them to act right. And you don't want them to do something stupid. But the problem is, their frontal cortex isn't developed right. <laughs> and they're just going to do dumb things. And they need discipline to help encourage them along the way. The same, the same is true for you, child of God. As a born-again child of God, we are growing up in Jesus. There are people of all different spiritual maturities here today. There are some of you here that are just newborn babes. There are others you've been saved and you're like a, you're like a, a toddler. There are others that are like teenagers. Others are like uh, adults and senior adults. I mean, there's, the, there's a, a, absolutely a plethora of uh, a different... Uh, grow, spiritual growth here in our, in our congregation. And the pastor has got the job of trying to, to take you where you are right now and get you up just a little bit to help grow you up, help you mature just a little bit. But you can't get all the maturity from me. you got to get it from the Lord. And many times the Lord will use discipline to help you get there. And so he says, don't give up when the Lord disciplines you in verse number 6. Don't faint, don't quit, don't throw in the towel, don't leave the church, don't, get, don't give up on God. 
Know that he's trying to make you into the image of Christ and keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep focused on Jesus. Number two, he says, not only do I want you to remember, he says, I want you to receive. What does he want you to receive? He wants you to receive the correction. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says in verse 7, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as, as with sons. He says, receive the chastisement of the Lord. This is going further than chapter than verse number 6. And he's saying, look, a lack of chastisement says that you're not even a son of God. So if the Lord's wearing you out, then thank God that he loves you enough to wear you out. Number three, there's a third thing here. And that's respect. Verses 9 through 11. He talks about respect. Look at what he says there in verse number 9. In the latter part in particular, if I could call your attention to that. He says, we gave them reverence, talking about the fathers before. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of the spirits and alive? He says, we respected the men that raised us, the parents that raised us. Should we not much, the more, the more show respect to him as he disciplines us? And he says so in this. He says, if you will respect God, it will produce two things. This, this is sitting on the notes on the screen, so I hope you'll get them. Number one, the first thing it will produce is life. Look at what he says in verse number 10. He says, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he to our profit. That's in the way that you live. God will chasten you to profit your life. So is he talking about money? No, he's talking about maturity conforming you into the image of Christ, molding you into the image of Jesus Christ. God never wastes a trial. He never wastes a challenge. He never wastes a heartache. He never wastes something that you feel like is a disservice from God. He never wastes it. It is always given so that you can share that with other people. The, one, the biggest hurt in my entire life is my whole family knowing that, that I was adopted by Robbie Robertson. Everybody knew it but me. But at 23 years of age, they decided to tell me. That's the biggest hurt in my life because I asked questions throughout the course of my life. Why don't I look like my dad? Why don't I act like my dad? Why don't I like the things my dad likes? What is my problem? And is there something wrong with me? And they'd say, oh, Shane, you're just special. Well, that meant something completely different in my mind. In my mind, being special meant I rode the short bus. And I'm not trying to be ugly or mean. I'm just saying that I must have some type of learning disability. There's something wrong with me because I'm special. I'm telling the God's honest truth. I'm not lying. When I was 18 years old, my 14-year-old brother was told I was mad so angry at God I quit the ministry but I stand here today to say this God used that in my life to make me more like Jesus that trial the biggest trial in my life helped conform me into the image of Christ to understand what true forgiveness really is and how to exercise forgiveness for those that have wronged you or you feel like has, have wronged you. He gives us right here the correction. He says, I want you to remember, I want you to receive, and I want you to respect God. And when you respect God, it gives life. But also, it doesn't just give you life. It also helps you in living. Look at what he says in verse number 10. He says that, again, in the latter part, he says that we might be partakers of His holiness. You know, we all want to be a part of his blessing. 
But it's hard when we have to experience his suffering. But when we experience his suffering, it produces within us his holiness. Oh, dear friend, I hope you got that. The suffering that you got, that you're going through, is intended for the purpose of making you holy. But you can reject that and get mad at God and say, you don't understand, I trust you, and you all over me. You just, I, I'm, I hate it and walk. You can do that. He'll let you. But you'll never learn what it is he's trying to teach you. Number three, here's the third thing. I got to hurry. Verses 12 through 17. He transitions again. He goes off of a correction and then he comes to a caution. There's a caution in verses 12 through 17. And here we see him uh, describe someone who has turned away from the faith. What does it look like for somebody to turn away from the faith? If somebody throws in the towel and they're upset at God and they walk away, what does that look like? He tells us right here in the passage of Scripture. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and feeble knees. Uh, let's go back up to verse number 11. Now, no chastising for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, <clears throat> look, verse 11 just simply says nobody likes the trial when they're going through it nobody it's hard to be joyous it's hard here here is a beautiful picture where it says it's hard to exercise James 1 1 when you're going through it verse 12 wherefore though lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way but let it rather be healed Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up and trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornication or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterwards when he would have inherited a blessing... He was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Oh, don't miss this. This is a caution. He's cautioning these believers. Don't follow the example of Esau. Don't follow that example. As a matter of fact, when you look at this text, he gives two things, an exhortation in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. There's an exhortation. And in this exhortation, he says, in order to avoid spiritual failure, in order to walk away from, not walk away from God, in order to go through the challenge that you're going through and stay true to God, there are four things that you've got to do. Number, even though you don't feel like it, you don't feel like it. You want to turn your back on God and walk away. Don't walk away, he says. Instead, do these four things. Number one, be faithful. Verse 12 and 13. He says, Wherefore, lift up hands which hang down in feeble knees and make straight paths your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. Don't forget about the illustration that he's using. The illustration he's using is a runner. And a runner that succeeds pushes through to the very end. You watch these runners. When they're running and they got their hands going, and man, they're running just as hard as they can, and they run all the way through the finish line with their hands pumping. He says, but those people that don't drop their hands. Those people that don't finish the race, their hands fall. And their knees begin to get tired. And he says, I want to encourage you. Lift up your hands. 
Don't stop being faithful. You know what the best remedy for discouragement is? Being faithful to God. Praising God. He says, be faithful. Uh, number two, he says, be diligent. Verse 14. I don't have time to break it down, but he says, be, follow peace with all men. That is, be diligent to be at peace with your enemies, even in the church. Number three, be holy. This is the latter part of verse 14. He says, and follow peace and follow holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Keep doing the right thing. Keep doing the main thing. Even though you don't feel like having your quiet time, have your quiet time. Even though you don't feel like going to church, go to church. You don't go to church because of your feelings anyways. You go to worship God. He says, be diligent. Be holy. And then the, the last one in verse 15, be vigilant in verse 15. Be vigilant. Look diligently lest any man follow the grace of God. What's he referring to is there is this. Listen to me. He's not saying that you will fall from the grace of God and lose your salvation. That's not what the text says. The text says be diligent and keep following after the Lord because people are watching you. You've got witnesses watching you. These witnesses that we have that have gone before us watching us and we're able to make it through because if brother so and so can make it through that trial that he had with alcoholism I can make it through that trial of alcoholism too. He is a witness to the glory of God. He says there are other people that are watching you and when they see you fall, when they see you fail, when they see you turn your back on Jesus, walk out of the church, give up on faith, they will never get saved. That's the caution. And then he gives the example. He said here's the example, verse 16 to 17, Esau. That story is found in Genesis chapter 25, uh, 27 through 34. I don't have time to go through it because I'm out of time right now. But if you'd bid me just two more minutes to go through this very quickly, I want to show you this in regards to point number four. Verses 18 through 24 is the comparison. Watch this. He compares two mountains. He talks about Mount Sinai, and then he talks about Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is the commandments. That's what, that's what he's going to talk about the commandments. And then Mount Sion, Sion or Zion, depending on what translation you got, it's the same word, one spelled with an S, one spelled with a Z. It is the city of David. It's always an illustration of the New Testament and heaven in the New Testament. And so that is a picture of Calvary. All right? So he gives this beautiful, beautiful uh, comparison. And this is what he says, and you can read it when you get home. He says, we are not after, we are not after uh, Mount Sinai. We are after Mount Zion. We're not after the Old Testament law. We are after Calvary. We're after Jesus. And because we follow after Jesus, he says we praise the living and mighty God. He makes this beautiful comparison on these two mountains. He's got a lot to say there. I don't have time to get into it. Here's the fifth and final point, though. You made it all the way through. To God be the glory. The only service that made it through the whole service, or the whole sermon. You did excellent. Here it is. The condemnation. Verses 25 through 29. He ends this section with a condemnation. He just simply says this. He emphasizes judgment. The judgment of God is coming. And don't be found on the wrong side of the judgment. He gives two things here. He gives a warning and then he talks about the works that the church does. L let me show you this very quickly if I could. He says in the warning, notice what he says there uh, beginning, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be 
15. It should be 25. Look at verse 25. Look at what the warning says here. He says, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Who is the one that's speaking? Is he talking about himself? No, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one that's speaking. So how do you know that? Look at verse 24. He says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. You remember when Cain killed Abel? What did God say about Abel's blood? It cries from the ground. You remember that, Chris? Abel's blood's crying out to me. Well, Jesus' blood cried out too. But it cried out something completely different. You see, Abel's blood cried out murder and injustice. But Jesus' blood cried out mercy, grace, and forgiveness. He tells us here in the text, he says, And to Jesus, the moderator of the new covenant, and to the blood sprinkled that speaketh better things. What's the better things? Oh, it's just what I talked about. But they're better than anything is heaven. Heaven. He's got heaven for us. He says in verse 25, See that you refuse not Jesus that speaks. For if they escaped not who refused him that speaketh on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. He said, man, they rejected him on, on earth then. They're rejecting him now. But God have mercy on us if we reject him at this point. Jesus is the Messiah. He's telling the church, you've got the truth. The truth is you're following after Mount Zion. You're following after Jesus. He's a better moderator. And then he talks about the works there beginning in verse 26. He says, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Dear friends, one day the heavens are going to split and King Jesus is going to come down. He says, and this word... Yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And then he says, verse 28, because of this church, because of this, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Here's how we're to live. Here's the works that we produce because of this. Because we're saved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably. With reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Here's the question. Here it is. I'm out of time. Are you consumed by the fire of God? Has God consumed you? Has he consumed you? Uh, Deuteronomy talks about how Mount Sinai, they, they, it looked like a volcano. I mean, they were just smoke, I mean, lightning, looked like a volcano. They were scared. Even Moses was scared. The Bible says Moses was terrified of that because it consumed. It could consume. Well, it wasn't that Mount Sinai was a volcano. It was God that was a consuming fire. And when Jesus Christ comes into a heart and life, he doesn't just take over one little place. He consumes everything. Here's the question. Are you consumed by that kind of God? If you're not consumed by him, and you just flippantly can walk away from Jesus, then you're not truly saved. 
If you can be in and out of church and have any convictions and not live off your convictions. I'm talking about what, what Hebrews talked about all the way through. If you don't understand that Jesus is better than any problem that you ever have, you can turn to him and he's going to get you through it. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand Jesus. And you need to give your heart to Christ. You can do that today. Let's bow for prayer as we close out this chapter. And next week we finish the book of Hebrews chapter 13. You might be here today, today, and you may have never been consumed by the fire of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, today is the day of your salvation. Today's the day you need to receive Christ as your Savior. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never asked Jesus to save you, but that's something you want to do, I'm going to invite you to do that right now. So how, how, Pastor? From your heart to God's heart. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're watching by way of video. It doesn't matter if you're right here in this room or listening by radio or podcast. Right where you're at today, would you say something like this to the Lord? From your heart to God's, say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. And this morning, by faith, I ask you to save me. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for saving me. Amen.